You are listening to a sermon preached at the First Christian Church of St. Ignatius in St. Ignatius, Montana. For more information, you can visit us at www.firstchristiansti.org. Good morning. Good to see everybody here this morning. And uh, as Bill correctly observed, it's that time of year again. And uh, I'm doing my best to avoid it, but it's not working. So we'll get there. All right. I do, I do enjoy the decorations and the poinsettias. And I know that the week from tonight, this place is going to look a little different. Because the week from tonight is the Christmas program extravaganza. And uh, looking forward to that. I haven't seen any of it. I, I like to not see any of it until it actually happens. And so that's happening a week from tonight, 7 o'clock. Please turn to John chapter 11. John chapter 11. Here is an old but scripturally incorrect joke. <laughs> After dying in a car crash, three friends go to heaven for orientation. They're all asked the same question. When you're in your casket, friends and family are mourning over you. What would you like to hear them say about you? The first guy immediately responds, I would like to hear them say that I was one of the great doctors of my time and a great family man. The second man says, I'd like to hear that I was a wonderful husband and school teacher who made a huge difference in our children of tomorrow. The last guy thinks for a minute and he replies, I'd like to hear them say, look, he's moving. Isn't that terrible? <laughs> now, uh, raise your hand if you have read or heard of any of these books. My Journey to Heaven, Marvin Best. You ever heard that one? No? That's not, a, that's not as popular as some, maybe. How about this one? To Heaven and Back. Oh, yeah, now we're getting some familiar. Yeah, we've heard that one, right? Okay. How about uh, Proof of Heaven? Anybody read that one by the neurosurgeon? No? The last two. 90 minutes in heaven. Okay. I thought probably. And then, of course, you know what the last one's going to be? Heaven is for real. Yeah. Yeah. Heard of or read, right? Yeah. Now, in each of these books, it is claimed. I'm not, I'm not assessing the claims here. I'm just telling you what they're about. In each of these books, it is claimed that a person either died or nearly died and visited heaven for a time. And there are numerous other books with similar claims. Many, many, many more such stories that have not yet been turned into books. The ones that have been turned into books, including those that I've mentioned here, generally are pretty popular and sell many copies. The last two that we mentioned here, 90 Minutes in Heaven and Heaven is for Real, have been made into movies as well. Why? Why are such stories as these so popular? Uh, I've got a couple of reasons, maybe. I think partly it's because people want to believe that this life is not all that there is to their existence. Another reason might be that people who already believe in life after death are looking for some kind of concrete confirmation of that belief. Somebody who's been there and done that. Whatever the case, I would say this. If you decide to read any of these books or others like them, please let me caution you not to take the contents of any of them 
as truth without confirming what they say with God's word in as much as you possibly can. One of these books is clearly a reflection of Mormon doctrine. I couldn't support it. While another one claims that people receive wings and halos in heaven. I don't see anything in the scriptures that supports that idea either. But the stories about what is seen and experienced are inconsistent with each other. And while we might be able to find a reasonable explanation for that, we can never find a reasonable explanation for any contradiction to God's word that we might find in them. So just just know that if you read them, be careful, right? But there's another reason why these stories are so popular, in my opinion. And that's one word, resurrection. Someone who was dead, almost dead, or expected to die now is alive. That's why I told that joke at the beginning of the message. That's why people spend many thousands of dollars to have themselves cryogenically frozen in hopes that they can be brought back to life someday. I know. As of, as of 2013, just to have your head cryogenically frozen, I'm not suggesting any of you do this, by the way, but just to have your head, uh, can cost as much as $70,000. Your entire body, we're looking at a couple hundred thousand. Up to, up to. There are, there are budget plans too. Who wants a budget plan for this, right? <laughs> yeah, of course, and you can't pay it off over time. They're not going to let you get away with that either because you're not going to be here. Anyway, in John chapter 11, we have a different kind of life after death story. Interestingly to me, and in contrast to those stories I mentioned earlier, the person who dies and is resurrected is never recorded anywhere in Scripture as saying even a single word. We assume that he did, but he's not recorded as saying anything. And if he had a story to tell about his time while he was dead, the Bible doesn't include it. The man who died was Lazarus, of course, and while he never speaks, both of his sisters do. I don't know what that says, but there it is. It's a long chapter. We won't get to discuss every nuance of every verse today. But as we read it, we will encounter the fifth I am statement of Jesus. And it should cause each and every one of us to consider what faith in Christ really means. The title of the message is, I am the resurrection and the life. And we'll begin in John 11, verse 1. And if I read this fairly quickly, it's just because there's a lot of scripture to read. The story is pretty familiar. And you can go back and reread it as many times as you want to. Here it goes. Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha. It was the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sisters sent word to him, that's Jesus, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. This he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. 
The disciples then said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Therefore Thomas, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, Let us go also, so that we may die with him. And I think he was referring to Jesus, thinking that the Jews were probably going to catch up with him and kill him at that point. Now the town of Bethany was about two miles southeast of Jerusalem, on the backside of the Mount of Olives. A man named Lazarus, his two sisters, Mary and Martha, lived there. We don't know an awful lot about them, except that they were close friends of Jesus, and Jesus liked to spend time there when he had the opportunity. John mentions that this is the Mary who put perfume on Jesus' feet and wiped them with her hair, a story that he's going to relate in the next chapter of his gospel. He apparently assumes his readers were familiar with that account. Even though Jesus' enemies don't know where to find him right now, his friends do. I like that. And Mary and Martha send word to Jesus that Lazarus is sick. But it's not just an announcement. Clearly, this is something far more serious than the case, uh, a case of the sniffles, and they are worried that Lazarus will die. And so this message is much more than a notification. It is an urgent request that Jesus come to Bethany. They are reaching out to him, hoping to draw him back. As the story unfolds, it is obvious that Mary and Martha hoped that Jesus would heal Lazarus before he died. That was their desire. And while that does indicate the faith that they had in Jesus as a miracle worker, it also illustrates that their faith in him had limits. And I think we'll see that as we go on. Now Jesus responded to the news about Lazarus by saying that his sickness would not end in death. And we don't know whether that statement got back to Mary and Martha, at least not immediately, but I think it's probable that it did, probably by the same messenger who brought the news about Lazarus to Jesus. Jesus hears the news. He says, oh, well, this, this sickness will not end in death. And the messenger hears that and goes home and tells Mary and Martha, it's not going to end in death. Master said so. And if Lazarus had recovered naturally from his illness, this would not have been a dramatic statement at all. Oh, well, Lazarus got better. Okay. Big deal, right? Even if Jesus had returned to Bethany and healed Lazarus, which would have been exactly what Mary and Martha and Jesus' disciples expected him to do, nothing new there. They've seen this kind of thing before. Sure, it's amazing, but not new. By that time, it would have just been one more miracle of healing among so many. But I think Jesus said this, knowing full well that Lazarus was going to die. Matter of fact, I know he knew that. And Jesus was about to raise the bar of understanding concerning who he is and what he can do. Now the disciples are very aware of the desire of the Jewish rulers to kill Jesus. And they're afraid of what might happen if Jesus returns to Jerusalem. But Jesus essentially tells them, we don't have anything to worry about. He, he says that because he is the light... He doesn't have to be afraid, and neither do those who follow him. And I, There's a whole uh, entire sermon to be preached about that statement alone. We'll have to save that for another time, but I hope you'll think about it. If you're walking in the light, you don't stumble. What can man do to you, right? Okay, You, you work that out on your own. Maybe that's a sermon you can prepare. We'll let you deliver that here sometime, maybe. Finally, Jesus reveals to his disciples that Lazarus has died but he tells them in a way that reflects his perspective and not theirs. He tells them Lazarus has fallen asleep. 
And as usual, his disciples take him literally. I don't know if they stopped to marvel at the fact that Jesus knew what was going on in Bethany without actually being there. But they assume that Lazarus is now resting comfortably and will recover. Well, they're right, but not in the right way. Uh, Jesus has to spell it out for them. That what he called sleep is actually death. Just as a side note, the Greek word for sleep is the same word that we get our word cemetery from. Yeah, okay. Think about that sleep, right? Not only is is Lazarus dead, Jesus said he is glad that he wasn't there when it happened so that his disciples would believe. And that's kind of an odd statement to me. When I read that at first, it's like, well, don't they already believe? Well, sure, they know that Jesus has power over illness, and they know that Jesus has power over nature, but now Jesus is going to show them that he has power over death. Verse 17. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him, but Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. When she had said this, she went away and called Mary her sister, saying secretly, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and consoling her, when they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Therefore when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. I find it very interesting that the first recorded words in this situation from both Martha and Mary, when Jesus returns, their recorded words are identical. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. A lot of things we don't know. How long had Lazarus been ill? Don't know. How long had his condition worsened until the day they became afraid he would die? How long had they discussed between themselves whether to send word to Jesus? And then Jesus doesn't show up. And finally, he arrives four days too late, as far as Mary and Martha are concerned. Any Lord of the Rings fans here? Lord of the Rings, like the movies, right? This is not in the book, by the way, but it is in the movie. In the first Lord of the Rings movie, Frodo Baggins accuses Gandalf the Grey, who is a wizard, of being late for Bilbo Baggins' birthday party. And of course, if you've seen the movies, you, you remember this part. Gandalf responds with, A wizard is never late, Frodo Baggins, nor is he early. He arrives precisely when he means to, right? Okay. <laughs> then they laugh at how absurd that statement is, of course. I think we could accurately apply that statement to Jesus, though. 
We'd say it this way. The Savior is never late, Mary and Martha, nor is he early. He arrives precisely when he means to. I think it fits Jesus a lot better than it fits Gandalf. Yeah. Mary and Martha's faith didn't go so far as to allow for Jesus to be able to do anything after Lazarus has died. Lazarus, in their minds, Lazarus has crossed the divide. He's crossed the chasm that we can't bridge. And we can't. He's, they were right about that. But they thought Jesus couldn't either. Well, the reality is that their faith in Jesus would not have grown if Jesus had showed up five days sooner and healed Lazarus. They already knew that. They already knew he could do that. Now, because Lazarus had already been dead for four days, Mary, Martha, Jesus' disciples, and all the other people who were present were going to get an opportunity to have a bigger faith in Jesus than they had before. A better understanding of who he is and what that means for them. And we need to remember that why did Jesus heal why not heal, but raise? Why did Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead? Keep that question in the back of your mind, okay? I'll try to remember to come back to it. That's not actually my notes. We'll have to come back to that. Jesus told Martha in verse 23 that Lazarus would rise again. She understood that to be a reference to the end times. They had a hope of resurrection at the end of the world. But Jesus was talking about that very day. And he then delivers the fifth I am statement of John's gospel, saying to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Now I have to give Martha credit here. She had come to the same point of faith that Peter expressed in Matthew 16 or in Mark chapter 8, where Peter said to Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, is his statement of faith. Martha is just as explicit, saying to Jesus, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. And that is an amazing confession of faith. But even though she says, no, I, And I know God will do whatever you ask of him now, I think her hope of resurrection was still limited to the end times. Not sure what she had in mind, but I don't think resurrection ever entered her mind at this point, for Lazarus on that day. Jesus, though, is about to demonstrate that he had the power of, resurre of resurrection available to him right then as well. Not just at the end time, not just someday, somehow, you know, after we're all dead and the world comes to an end, but right then. Jesus also defined the essentials of faith necessary to receive the resurrection. He who believes in me, Jesus said, will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. At least not permanently. To believe in Jesus means to accept the fact that he is the Son of God. And to accept the fact that he is the Messiah. And to accept the fact that he will return someday just as he has promised. But to believe in Jesus also means that once a person has accepted those truths about him... That person will act on that belief, surrendering to Christ's lordship and becoming a true disciple who does what Jesus commands. A faith, uh, faith is not something that can simply be intellectual. It has to be something that is applied and put into practice. And that's what true belief is. Verse 33. Still speaking about Martha. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping 
And the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled and said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews were saying, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? So Jesus, again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, Remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you believe you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it, so that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth! The man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done, sorry, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. The situation surrounding the death of Lazarus is one of the few times that we see this kind of depth of emotion displayed by Jesus. I'm not saying he didn't experience it any other time. I'm just saying it's not always on display or it's not always commented on by the writers. I will say, though, that his weeping in verse 35 is different than that of Mary in verse 33. Mary's weeping was produced by the deep emotional expression of grief over losing her brother, that sense of loss, that, that just helplessness and, and despair and all the things that combined. And she was, it was uncontrollable, sobbing kind of weeping. Jesus' weeping seems to be tears brought to his eyes by his feelings of empathy for Mary and Martha. They hurt, and so he hurt. He understood their grief. He wasn't crying about Lazarus' death. He had that situation firmly in control. Lazarus wasn't going to be dead much longer. But Jesus loved Mary and Martha, and how they felt at this time mattered to him. I think that's something we should remember. And I know that sometimes we try to minimize our emotions and our feelings, and there may be a place for that. I mean, we can be overly emotional or, or dramatically emotional unnecessarily. But we were given our feelings and our emotions for a reason, too. They're real. And they have a purpose. And know this, that Jesus cares about yours, like he cared about Mary and Martha's. Well, there were some there who knew that Jesus had healed the man who had been born blind back in chapter 9. They asked if Jesus could have kept Lazarus from dying. Well, the answer, of course, is yes, but just like Mary, Martha, and Jesus' disciples, these people needed to know that Jesus' power went beyond healing. See, we've, we've, we have. We've crossed the divide. Lazarus has gone to a place where there's no reasonable human expectation that he's coming back, at least not until the end of time. And Jesus is about to step across that divide, bridge that gap, and bring him back. Back in verse 17, when Jesus arrived in Bethany, 
John states that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. And Martha mentions that also when Jesus tells them to remove the stone that covered the tomb's entrance, saying, by this time the smell would be so bad that they shouldn't open the tomb. I think uh, Old King James says something to the effect of, Lord, he stinketh. Yeah. <laughs> the common belief at that time was that the spirit of the dead person would remain near the person for three days. And that it might be possible for the spirit and the body to reunite in that time, but that after three days, the spirit would abandon the body and there was no further hope that the person would return. Now, this is a far cry from the minutes or hours, I'm going to say, of supposed death experienced by the people we mentioned at the beginning of the message. Again, not calling it into question, just saying that it's what is alleged to have happened. It is the opinion of several commentators that Jesus intentionally delayed returning to Bethany until after Lazarus had been dead those four days in order to show that it was his power that was responsible for the resurrection of Lazarus and not some other cause where the spirit just was hanging around and got back into the body somehow. Oh, Lazarus, you know, he came back and he's okay. Uh, No, no, this had to be something beyond that. And it was, that's a superstitious belief, but it had to be something beyond that superstition. Now, before Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, he prayed. And I think it's important to note that he gave thanks as his first uh, words of prayer. But it's clear that Jesus already knew that it was God's will that Lazarus be raised. He's, He's talking to God about something that's already taken place between them. I thank you that you heard me. I know that you always hear me. I thank you that you heard me. There's there's already been some interaction here. But instead, Jesus was praying for the benefit of the people who were standing there. So they would know that Jesus acted with the power, authority, and approval of God the Father. And then in a loud voice, Jesus called out, Lazarus, come forth. And that's a dramatic moment. I imagine that everyone there was completely silent, probably holding their breath, eyes fixed on the opening of the tomb. And that's, I mean... Wouldn't you like to have been there to see that take place? Now, we don't know how much time passed, but the next thing John records is that the man who died, that's Lazarus, came out of the tomb, bound though he was, both hands and feet, and his face also wrapped with a cloth. So I I guess it was with difficulty he came out of the tomb, but there he is. There he is, standing in front of all of them, which, by the way, is what the word resurrection actually means. It means to stand again. Okay? Anyway. Like my dad always says when he preaches about the raising of Lazarus, it was a good thing that Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth, because if he had just said, come forth, everyone buried within the sound of Jesus' voice would have risen that day. And while that would have been an interesting development, it wasn't what Jesus wanted right then, right? Why? Why raise Lazarus from the dead? It wasn't so Lazarus could live forever. We'll talk about that again toward the end of the message. I think it's clear that Jesus wanted to establish that he had the power and authority to raise the dead. And if Jesus could raise one person from the dead, a man who had been dead four days, past their self-imposed limit, you know, when it was possible for a person not to really be dead, then he could raise as many people as he wanted, whenever he wanted. And he's proving the statement that he made to Martha, Jesus is the resurrection and the life. 
And in this, we find a reminder of why John is writing this whole account. As a result of the raising of Lazarus, many of the Jews who were present believed in Jesus. This is exactly why John wrote this account. And we are reminded again of his words in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. I didn't put them on the screen, but you probably know them by heart by now. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Every week as we study the Gospel of John here, those of us who already believe in Jesus can have our faith reinforced as we consider again the presentation of Jesus as the Son of God by John. And those of us here who do not yet believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior, or who have not acted on that belief, can be led to that point of faith that each of us needs if we hope to be resurrected to eternal life when Christ returns. And then I almost didn't include the end of the chapter in this message, but we kind of need to tie it in with this before we get on with what we're going to see in chapter 12. So verse 47 goes on this way. Therefore the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, What are we doing? For this man, talking about Jesus, is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Now, he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. Therefore, Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went away from there to the country near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. So they were seeking for Jesus and were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he was to report it so that they might seize him. Yeah, politics as usual is what I've called this uh, segment, and, and I think you see it in action. Word about the raising of Lazarus from the dead had reached the chief priests and the Pharisees in Jerusalem. It's not that far, and there were people that went there with that express purpose. But can you believe their response? It, it, it's kind of like if somebody were handing you money, and you say, I, uh, my pockets are getting full. I don't know what to do with all this. I'm going to have to kill you. you know, okay, That's kind of what this is happening here. This Jesus guy keeps healing people and performing miracles, and now he's gone and brought a dead person back to life. If we don't do something, everybody's going to believe in him. Oh yeah, that would be a terrible thing, right? And now we see just how far off base these people really were. Shouldn't they have been asking themselves what sort of person it is who can actually raise the dead? They couldn't deny the miracles of Jesus, but they could put a political spin on the situation. That's exactly what happened here. They thought... Or they said they thought that if everyone believed in Jesus, that somehow that would attract the attention of the Roman government, who would then come and destroy Jerusalem and the temple, and, and they'd take away their nation and it'd get so much worse than it already was. 
which tells you something about these people. All the chief priests and the Pharisees could think about was preserving their own situation. They didn't really care about the spiritual well-being of the Jewish people. And I think it shows a tremendous lack of faith in God on their part. And I say that because what are they concerned about? They're concerned about the Romans coming in. They're concerned about the Romans doing this and the Romans doing it. Who's on their side? Or supposed to be? God. Is the, are the Romans more powerful than God? No. And what are they worried about? No, they're worried about themselves, their own situation, right? The high priest, Caiaphas, tells them that Jesus will die and that it is better for one man to die than for the whole nation to suffer at the hands of the Romans. And he thought of this was his idea. But John... John makes it clear to us that this was a prophecy that came from God and not from Caiaphas. The high priests and Pharisees understood what Caiaphas said as a death sentence that they would carry out against Jesus. And it was. God meant for Caiaphas to express the truth about the work of substitutionary atonement that Jesus would perform for the Jews, but not just for the Jews, as well as for all the people of all nations who would find salvation in Jesus. And I guess I should add to that, of all times, because that means you and me, if we are taking advantage of this now. All right? And then at the very end of the chapter, there's this prelude to Passover. And this is the Passover. The Passover that's coming, during which Jesus is arrested and crucified. Okay? In, in the time of John's gospel account, we're six days away, roughly. About a week. In our time, we're not going to get to Passover for two weeks because we've got chapter 12 to go through. When we start chapter 12, well, let me go this way. Um, uh, chapter 13 begins with what we call the Last Supper. Chapter 12 begins at a point six days before that. All right? So we got six days before Passover. Then we have Passover with the Last Supper. That's the next two weeks of, of messages. But then we don't get to the crucifixion until chapter 19. There's a lot going on here between Jesus and his disciples in those other chapters. The event of raising Lazarus from the dead came at just the right time to galvanize the Jewish leaders into action when Jesus would finally allow himself to be taken because it will finally be the right time. You remember how they've been trying to take him by force. They've been trying to stone him. They've been trying to catch him. They can't. He's one guy. How hard can this be? No, he's Jesus. That's why it's difficult, right? But now it's going to be the right time. And this is the event. This is the event that turns that gear, the final turn, and brings it to the point of now Jesus has demonstrated what he came to demonstrate. Everything that he needed to have on display is there. Is there. Uh, he's not finished with his teaching. Like I said, we've got a bunch of chapters before we actually... You know, to cover that last week between uh, the beginning of chapter 12 and the actual crucifixion, we've got a bunch of things to talk about there. He's not done in his teaching, but in terms of what he had to put on display, how he had to show himself, how he had to prove himself to be who he said he is, yeah. That's all taken care of. Now, you know, we have no way of knowing what, if anything, Lazarus experienced while he was dead. And that's true for two reasons. 
First of all, nothing written down has been preserved, if anything was written down, either what he might have written himself or what he might have told others about the incident. Okay? And I've already alluded to the second reason we don't know what happened to Lazarus while he was dead. That's because he died again. He's not around for us to ask him about what happened. And even if Lazarus did experience something while he was dead, don't you think that if it was important for us to know what it was, John or some other writer of Scripture would have been inspired to record it? If neither of those, either nothing happened, or it's not important for us to know what happened, or possibly both of those things, right? Instead, this account focuses on Jesus and the power that he has over death. He is the resurrection and the life, and no one else can claim that. And I've got a list. You, you can make your own list. I've got, you know, not Buddha, not Muhammad, not Confucius, not Joseph Smith, not any other religious leader that you can name. No one else has the power over death. No one else can make the claim to be the resurrection and the life. Jesus is the resurrection and the life, and the account of the raising of Lazarus proves it. I mentioned Lord of the Rings before. Do we have any Star Wars fans here? Oh, good, a few of you. All right, that's good. Uh, if you're not, bear with me. I think it'll become evident where I'm headed here. In Star Wars Episode Three, which is actually the sixth movie, don't go there, yeah, I know, The Revenge of the Sith, Yoda little green guy with the big ears, is counseling Anakin Skywalker about the premonitions of death he's been having concerning his wife Padme, right? And at one point, Yoda says this, Death is a natural part of life. Rejoice for those around you who transform into the Force. Mourn them, do not. Miss them, do not. Attachment leads to jealousy, the shadow of greed, that is. And, you know, it sounds kind of profound and wise and philosophical, but it's really, really bad theology, okay? Jesus came to be the resurrection and the life because man wasn't meant to die. Man was meant to live. Death is the enemy, But death has entered the world. And death is something that we face unless Christ returns. And there are then two ways to die. You die either knowing Jesus as your Savior, covered by His blood, redeemed by His sacrifice, given eternal life, or you die not knowing Jesus as your Savior, having nothing to justify you before God on the Day of Judgment. Those are the only two ways that you have to die, knowing Christ as your Savior or not. Those who, know, who, who die knowing Jesus as Savior and Lord will be raised to eternal life in heaven with God not 90 minutes, not a few hours, but eternal life forever in heaven with God. And those who die not knowing Jesus as their Savior will be raised, but not to eternal life. 
They will be raised to eternal torment in hell, completely separated from God. So what would you choose? Does the account of Lazarus convince you that Jesus is the resurrection of the life? Resurrection and the life? Do you understand that those who believe in him shall live even if they die? Are you ready to take Jesus at his word? And all this if you haven't already, right? To believe in him as the Christ, the son of the living God, ready to repent of your sin. Ready to confess your faith in Jesus to the rest of us here. Ready to be baptized into him for the forgiveness of your sin. To receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Ready to be granted eternal life in the resurrection. If you've not made that choice. And you hear this account of Lazarus and you realize what that means about Jesus. And what that means about you. And what, you, what that means about your need for him to be the resurrection and the life for you. And you want to say yes please come forward as we stand and sing our invitation song.